You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen. Thank you, worship team. I love that new song. It fits so well with the message of 2 Corinthians that we have been in here for a while. Uh, kids, you are free to go to your class back there. We got Heather and Chris today. And next week, a few kids are going to be baptized. If anyone else is ready to be baptized and would like to have a conversation about that, please do talk to me. I would love to, uh, to talk through that with you as well. Well, take your Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, I want to just say that uh, advertising is well entrenched. It's a necessity, almost a necessity in our culture. It's hard to live. It's hard to go anywhere to get online without being bombarded with ads, right? I mean, you know what I mean. They're just for everything and anything. You know, drink Coke. It's so refreshing. Subscribe to this online seminar, and you can monetize your podcast. Uh, If you don't watch this show on TV, you're just going to miss out on the funniest hour of your week, and uh, you need to buy this new program, this new cookbook, and you'll make the best meals ever. It just just never ends. I mean, it's like, okay, get this motorcycle, and and you will get a girlfriend if you get this fly ride. Like, everything we see is an advertisement of some sort. What the marketing gurus behind all these ads don't tell you is that even though Coca-Cola is refreshing for five minutes, it doesn't quench your thirst. It only makes you more thirsty, and it's also very fattening, right? Uh, They don't tell you that um, a ton of people have podcasts, and they haven't uploaded a podcast in over a year, and no one ever is going to listen to their podcast again. They don't tell you that uh, that cookbook is nice, those recipes are great, but you're barely going to ever have time to make those amazing meals, and your family is never going to just sit around the table and just enjoy them every single week, so that cookbook isn't as valuable as you need. And if you get that motorcycle and get a girlfriend, that's not the girlfriend you want to have. The girlfriend that gets you for the motorcycle is not the right girlfriend. Is what I'm saying is every bright side, everything in life, okay, has a downside. Even the good things, even the things that we enjoy in life have a downside. And in our final message in this section in 2 Corinthians, we've gone from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 7. We've called this series Affection in Affliction. Next, next time we come back to 2 Corinthians, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 8. It'll be a different message because he's going to be talking about something a little different. But Paul, in the opening chapters, which we read, we read portion of chapter 1 during our worship service already, you can see the affliction in life that Paul was referring to. He has shifted his focus recently in the last few chapters on our calling, our identity, on the purity of the church. He's been talking about our eternal purpose and our mission in life. And now in chapter 7, he is bringing all of that full circle. And we're going to see really why this series has been called Affection in Affliction. Because every rose has its thorns. And it's in the interest of the advertisers not to let you think about those thorns. But no matter how slick the packaging is, as Christians, we understand this because we live in a fallen world the curse of sin, and has affected everything. And even religion, even even that can be sold as a rose 
without any thorns. So many people have in their mind, you know, they've been sold this bill that religion, it will give you purpose. It will give you knowledge of the future. It'll give you better family dynamics, better parenting skills, uh, excitement and passion for everyday life. And even though those things are true, if you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, when you're just sold that that's what you want with church, that's what you're looking for with religion, it can easily, in the, in the affliction of life, not turn out to be so much that at every, every turn. And people can get bitter. They can get angry. They can, they can say, well, wait, this isn't I'm not being provided this right now with, with my faith. So they, they move on. They move on to a new flavor or a different brand of something else to try to find those things. Everything has a downside. And you may not have expected to walk into a church today and hear a sermon about the thorns of life that go along with the rose. But that's where Paul is taking us in 2 Corinthians 7. So that's where we're going to go. And uh, not only are we going to talk about the darker side of life, what the scripture is going to be calling being downcast, which is another way to say depressed, we are also going to see the ultimate answer to this. To the, the way that you can actually, in the midst of affliction, find joy and comfort. The answer to that is found in Jesus Christ. So, hopefully you're there. 2 Corinthians 7, let's take a look at the not-so-advertised side of life, beginning in verse 2. And I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll go from there. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I did not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is written, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put, I was not put to shame. 
But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the close to the series. And if you've been with us all the way through, you, you understand what, what's going on. There's a lot to unpack here. And even if this is your first day with us, it's okay. Um, you're still going to be able to fully understand what's happening. So in verses 2 through 4, Paul has just shown his pastoral heart. You can see it right off the bat. Make room in your hearts for us. Then he says again, you were in my heart to die together, to live together. And if you are following along with the context of where we've been, Paul has had to defend himself against the false teachers that have crept into this church, the church at Corinth. After he left, um, there were other leaders who came in and they started attacking Paul personally. They were using all the right words. They were using all the Christian lingo of the gospel, but they were repackaging that with the philosophy of the world that had permeated and affected everything that they were looking to do. And Paul puts all that to rest, and he just says, look, I know you, you know me. I haven't been taking advantage of anyone. No one's been taken advantage of here. And he's referring to this last letter that he wrote him, wrote them. And he's saying, yes, it was bold. But you know, you say bold things to people who you love, right? And that's what Paul was doing with the church at Corinth. And, uh, and before we go any further with this, I have to just pause right here on a little side note, but this is important because it's baked into the whole context of everything we've seen with Paul's love and concern for the Corinthians. There is no professional distance between Pastor Paul and the church at Corinth. Is there, is there any professional distance here where somebody's keeping their emotions in check? I don't see it. You know, Paul is invested. He knows these people. They know him. And their relationship is way, way deeper than just, I see this guy once a week preach, and then I move on and go on during the rest of my week on my merry way and live my life. That's not what we see. That's not the model we have here in the New Testament church. It's not, all right, I hear him, and oh, he said something I don't agree with. All right, I'm out. I'm not even going to talk, talk through and work through this. No, they have a deep relationship, and Paul is putting himself out there. And the, and the truth is, this kind, these kind of relationships in the church between the leaders, the people, even just people in the church, this is a lot more rare than you, think it, in it, than you would think it actually is because people often are leery of this level of openness. We just are. And I think we all know why. Because when you put yourself out there and you, and, you, and you put your heart in the mix, you are opening yourself up to get burned by people. And I think if you live with people, you understand this. You can get burned by people. And, and it has happened to people, even in the church. Um, and it's affected it. I hope that's not the case for you because we're going to be talking about this. I, I remember one time Julie had a conversation with a pastor's wife. And this pastor's wife told Julie, word for word, 
I just don't really try to get to know people. I don't really get involved and invest myself emotionally in people because I just have been hurt too much and I don't trust people anymore. That's a pastor's wife openly just saying that. And she's not alone. I know there's a lot of people that way, and it's not just pastors and wives either. It's people in the church. I think we all probably in this room, most of us in this room at least, have family members who have been hurt by members of the church before. They've been hurt by the church, and now they don't really invest in the church, if go at all, to church. There's a lot of people in my own family that way. So we have to like step back and see, wait a minute, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, this was a real relationship. He wrote a very strong letter to them. They were, having, they, they were having a conflict. There was an affliction here that was hurting Paul emotionally, but he didn't stop investing in them and, and believing in what the church was supposed to be, a body that has in-depth relationships. Um, I would say this is actually one of the reasons, because if people have this fear of investing their heart in other people's lives, I would say this is one of the reasons why people find church boring and why people aren't invested in church like they should, like they should be. They find it unfulfilling because they have put this distance between their heart and other people in the church. They, and I understand, we've, we just talked about it. The reason why they do that is they don't want to be hurt. They don't want to feel pain. But if you do that, you're not going to allow yourself to feel everything that we've just read Paul and his relationship with the Corinthians and Titus, all of these, all of these nuances of these in-depth relationships are not going to be yours. And you can't have joy and comfort in this life without the relationships that God has for you. So Paul is as real as it gets. He would not be overflowing with joy here and telling him what he had to say to them to condemn them and then for them to change and respond. He would never have challenged them and said, hey, I have pride in you. I knew you were better than this. I knew you would come through. Because this really is a happy ever after ending right here in chapter 7. This is amazing. Of all the stuff we've been through from 1 Corinthians all the way up to this point, like they have responded, but that would have never happened if he didn't actually open himself up to say the hard things in love and to actually pour into them. He's modeling the kind of relationship that all of us need. Pastors, elders, life group leaders, members of a church. That's all of us. So, so what we have often in America, like right now, the model with like a really amazing, you know, mega church with this like celebrity pastor, or you know, you 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 never see like the, the leaders of the church getting their hands dirty, investing in people. That's foreign to the New Testament. And another thing that's foreign to the New Testament is people just casually coming and going and saying, hey, it's convenient for me. Like, all right, here's a good week. I don't have anything going on in my crazy life this week, so I guess I can squeeze church in on Sunday morning. You don't have that either. You have people investing in other people. They make it a priority. So if you haven't been following along super closely in this letter all the way through, um, we have Titus being involved. We have Macedonia here, and he's referring to this letter that was written. And I've already kind of like alluded to it as well. So for a quick review, we have covered this especially in the opening, but it helps to know the history, to get a feel for where Paul is coming from. So Paul planted this church in Acts 18. He, the whole story is revealed. You know, he goes into this pagan city. It was a wicked city. Uh, 
and he plants a church, and it was like a honeywell, all right? Like, great things were happening. He stayed there a year and a half, which was really rare for him at this time because he was planting church after church. He stayed there for a year and a half. He built these close relationships with the Corinthians. He moved on, and then he received some reports that some bad things were happening, right? So then he wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians, and he was addressing these different issues that were going on in the church. Soon after that letter, he came back only to find out that things had not gotten any better. They'd actually gotten worse. And there was bad leadership attacking Paul personally. They were distorting the purity of the gospel. And Paul had to leave, and it was a pretty ugly scene. So from there, after he left, he wrote another letter. And this letter is not in the New Testament canon. It's not in our Bibles. God has not uh, preserved it for us. We don't know exactly what the letter says, but it's really easy to read in between the lines to realize this was a severe letter. Um, and it was delivered by Paul, uh, it was delivered from Paul by Titus. And this is where Paul just laid the hammer down. And after he wrote that letter, he decided not to come back for the other visit like he had talked about. He was just going to lay it out there and let the Holy Spirit do the work. He was going to step back and, 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 and not press the matter again. We've been talking through this, but again, this is filling in all these gaps, maybe, from what you're, what you're reading in 2 Corinthians 7 right here. So as we pick it back up in verse 5, in 2 Corinthians 7, you're going to see that this broken relationship, at this time, Paul's explaining, when I wrote that letter, and I let it hang out there, and I didn't insert myself back in the situation, it was pretty rough emotionally. Like, Paul was pretty shooken up about it all. Like, he was losing sleep. Look at verse 5. Let's just read that again. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, so that's when he went north, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So this was devastating. How are they going to respond? He did not know. It was difficult. And we've been in those situations, too, where you have an unknown. You don't know how it's going to all work out. And this is where we get our first point today on having comfort and joy in the midst of affliction. Number one, anchor yourself to the God who comforts the downcast. That's what you do. First and foremost, you anchor yourself to him. The word downcast here in the original language is exactly what we mean when we say depressed. It's the same thing. I already brought up how hard ministry can be. And, and most of us in this room know how hard relationships can be. Paul is wearing his emotions on his sleeve. He was distressed at every turn. We felt that way, right? It feels like every decision you make, every turn, you, every turn it's like there's more conflict. There's, there's more obstacles in the way. Fighting on the outside, fears within. And I know, like, there are people in this room who have fighting on the outside, fears within. Many of you know me, and I know you, and I understand that this church is full of people, and literally everybody has a battle on the outside, and every single person has some type of fear within. I love the fact that our church has a culture where we know each other, where we're invested in one another. There are school pressures in our church family. There are career hurdles. There are broken families. There are health concerns. And, and we have really tried to establish this aspect of the church, 
to build this culture from day one. We're not just a church with life groups that are for like the super spiritual people that want to give another night of their week. No, we're a church of life groups. Like we're a church of people that are, that are bonding together and working through life together shoulder to shoulder. We have to have that. And you can have that too if you just put yourself out there. But if you feel like in the midst of everything that's going on in your life, whatever your battle is, whatever your fear within, if you feel like, oh man, I've just, I just don't have it. I'm such a failure. Like I don't, I don't have it all together. There's something wrong with me. If you're struggling with affliction of some sort in this fallen, unjust world, Please look no further than what Paul says right here. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. The Apostle Paul includes himself in this. Paul was even downcast, and he was comforted by the coming of Titus. He admits he was in there, in the bottom of it all. And the first component of finding joy and comfort in the midst of affliction is anchoring yourself to God, the Father. Paul, uh, point, you know, his point is that his full and lasting joy came from God, the good Father. Because that's God's nature is to help those who are hopeless. That's what he does. Paul couldn't sleep at night. He didn't know how the Corinthians would accept his letter. And he was depressed. So if you're thinking, wow, isn't this the same guy who said, be anxious for nothing? <laughs> and, and, and the same guy who said, God has not given us the spirit of fear? Yes, it is. It's the exact same guy. But this is a good reminder that Paul is human just like you and I. Same, same exact temptations, feelings, emotions, trauma that we go through, Paul experienced it as well. We can think, wow, that Apostle Paul, he was superhuman. You know, he, I could never be like him. You know, the secret of being faithful isn't just the fact that you never struggle with things. That's, that's a lie. Of course you're going to still struggle with things. Of course you're going to still feel affliction in this life. The, way, the, the secret is you, you fight for faith and you go to God. You anchor yourself on the God who comforts the downcast. You're not going to get that comfort ultimately anywhere else but God. The same God who comforts Paul is the same God who comforts us when we are downcast. Same God. And none of us have it all together. We can't take pride in ourselves and pretend and, and cover it up, pretend everything's all good all the time, because not everything is all good all the time. Again, we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. With every rose, there is a thorn. We can't forget that. But God brings comfort. So let's talk about comfort. Like many words, this word comfort has changed over time. And in our current culture, you may be thinking of, all right, well, comfort foods, comfort colors, you know, getting pampered, a mom talking to their child in a soothing voice. You know, don't cry, Johnny. Like, that's what we kind of think of when we say the word comfort. Just that sappy, oh, I hope, it, I hope you feel better. Like, that, as if that's really going to bring somebody comfort. Because it really doesn't. In the New Testament, this word comfort was way stronger. It had way more of a, a sense of 
um, emboldening and empowering. The original Greek word for comfort is this idea that to comfort someone wasn't to get them ready to go lay down and take a nap, but to comfort them was to strengthen them, fill them with courage to stand back up and fight. That's what comforting somebody was. So when you're in affliction, there's only one way you can get that kind of comfort. It's by blocking out all the unknowns, the things that you don't have the full, full information on. Don't focus on the unknowns, but focus on what you do know. You know God loves you. You know God sent Jesus to die for you. You know God will give you the Holy Spirit to help you and comfort you and embolden you. Focus on what you do know, not what you don't know. Jesus Christ gave the gift of salvation, and your God is stronger than anything than anything this life can throw at you. Your problems, no matter how big they are, and I'm not going to minimize how big some of our problems are because they're very big problems in this life, but even as big as those problems can be, they are small to God who knows everything, who's in control of everything, and who will provide. So more on that to come. But think about this. Just personalize it for a minute. Where do you go when you're hurting? What's your knee-jerk reaction? Is it to block out everything with a substance, you know, and abuse a substance to, to, to get your mind off of it? Is it just to go eat ice cream? Notice that I'm, like, separating ice cream from the rest of substances. You have other substances. I guess you could say ice cream could be a substance, too. But... But what, what do you do? Maybe you just get super busy, right? Like, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to go nonstop so I don't have to think about it, so I can block things out. I know a lot of people who do that. Maybe you just veg out, watch a movie, jump into fantasy world. Like, this is my hobby. I'm going to just, I'm just going to get rid of my problems this way. And yeah, those have some temporary relief. They bring temporary relief for sure. They would, no one would do them if they didn't bring some temporary relief. But it's not going to give you joy and comfort in the midst of affliction to the point where you're through it and you have a peace that surpasses understanding. Only God brings that. There's a thousand different ways that people cope with affliction that they're facing. But there's only one way to find true comfort and joy. It's through your creator and through your sustainer. It's through your great God and Savior. That's who brings it. Now, the other piece here that is bundled in is God brings peace and joy through the comfort of Titus. See that in verse 6? Right there. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And Paul has a lot more to say about this um, in the verses ahead. So we'll, we'll go back into that. We're going to talk more about that. But remember, remember this piece. God, who comforts the downcast, uses other humans to do this. And we're going to come back to this human element of finding comfort and joy in the midst of affliction in a few minutes. But for now, verse 9 transitions into the foundation, the heart behind it all. God does this work, and there's a specific process that he has established that's paramount to it all. Because if you don't know God, if you don't know him in the first place, how are you ever going to anchor yourself to him, right? So verse 9 takes us there. If God is just some intellectual belief that you have, your emotions are going to sway you. There's things in life that will be stronger than a simple intellectual belief. Your relationship with God has to go deeper than intellectual consent. 
Something transformational has to take place. And that's what verses 10 through 13 are talking about. So read those verses with me. The second way to have joy and peace and comfort in the midst of affliction, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, and what longing, and what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So here's the deep part of the message. And this really is gold. When we talk about how Christians in the church should think differently than the world, this is, this is another perfect example of how our thinking has to be different. Worldly grief and godly grief, okay? Some translations will say worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. You can see it right there in, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And as deep as this is, it's really not that complicated. When the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you, it clicks. You're going to know this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit, this is going to be really muddy, it's going to be really hard, and you're probably going to be confused. But there's one type of sorrow that is full of remorse, it's full of what-ifs and bitterness, and in the end, it brings death. There's only one type of sorrow that leads to repentance and life without regret. So let's talk about worldly grief first. Worldly grief is purely horizontal. It's just all in the here and now, my relationship with this person, it does not have the vertical aspect of God in it at all. You know, worldly grief is, I'm super sad and bummed that I got caught. I can't believe I got caught. Now my wife's mad at me, my boss is mad at me, I blew it, I, I just, I, I'm a failure, oh man, tears and, and snot, and it's just like, worldly grief is just like, it happens all the time in this life, right? Like, people do stupid things, and they feel remorse for it. Sometimes they even go as far as self-harm. Worldly grief is purely emotional, and it has no spiritual nature in it at all, because it's focused on man, and God is nowhere to be found in this version of grief. Except, you know, maybe perhaps where people will blame God, but that's as far as it goes. So worldly sorrow, worldly grief, is passive towards sin. It's, it's more about, you know, training sin and, and, and coping with sin than it is just putting my sin to death and moving past it. Worldly grief is emotional, not spiritual. An example of this, um, as I was thinking about this, you know, there's, there's no eternal forgiveness, there's no restoration found in this. It's just, you know, let me find somebody else to blame. I don't want to be the victim, or, or I'm the victim. There's always another bad guy. It's just totally man-centered. And a perfect example of this is something that is philosophically like just coming out of nowhere, and it's permeating all kinds of aspects of our society, but it really fits worldly grief, and that is critical race theory. Uh, you are regarded according to the flesh, first of all, exactly what 2 Corinthians 5, a couple chapters ago, told us not to do, and you have to do all this work to become anti-racist. 
You have to rid, rid yourself of all these embedded unconscious biases. And you can never really become new and put it all in the past. It's something that's always going to be with you. And it produces worldly grief. There's always an element of guilt because you're categorized as either an oppressor or oppressed. And it's all horizontal. It's just littered with guilt and shame, and it does damage on both ends. If anyone wants to go further into that, this is just an illustration at this point, but it is a perfect example of this. I would be glad to talk with you more about it. But I, could, I just thought it was a perfect example. It's destructive. It creates nothing but further resentment and bitterness. And that is worldly grief. It's a mess. It doesn't see the danger of sin. It just wants to cover up the sin. And it feels bad because I feel like I'm missing out on something in this life. Whereas with godly grief, you realize I'm missing out on something that God has for me. You have that vertical plane. Godly grief acknowledges that I have sinned against a holy God. I am not being set apart like he is. So godly grief is not stuck on the human level. It goes beyond emotions and being sorry for getting caught. And godly grief goes down to the heart level. And you address your sin with God. Rather than training sin or coping, making coping mechanics for sin, it puts it to death by laying it at the feet of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's just like Psalm 32, verse 5. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And whenever in the Psalms you see that word Selah, it means just stop, take a deep breath and focus for a minute, meditate on what he just said. You forgive the iniquity of my sin. So, Godly grief goes so far beyond horizontal things that happen, and you look up to God. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. There's a word that you have to understand. It's another word that's under attack today. People don't want to talk about what this, really, this word really means. The word repentance means to change your mind. That's what it means. You not, not, not just sorry that you got caught, you're actually changing the way you think about it because you realize this does not align with who God is. And it's taking me the wrong direction. And I need to realign myself with God. So this goes beyond the horizontal things that happen. You look up to God and you change your mind. In this, in this repentance, what does it lead to in this passage? Something that we talk about every single week, Right? Repentance leads to salvation. And then as verse 7 says, you were in the clear. There's no indignation. What indignation? God isn't angry at me anymore. There's no fear. Because Jesus took my punishment. This is really, really good news. You may be disciplined in this life as a Christian, but you're never going to be punished ever again. Just like with our kids. We don't need to punish our kids. We discipline our kids because we love them. God punished Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, you will, if you are in Christ, you will never be punished for the consequences of your sin and the wages of your sin. Because God's wrath was absorbed by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ took that for you. 
Godly sorrow and acknowledgement of your sin before a holy God leads to repentance. That leads to salvation. Comfort and joy come through godly grief because you realize, hey, even though I did this, even though this happened, it's under the blood of Jesus Christ. I have, I have repented, I have changed my mind, and it is made new. So confess your sin to God. Don't cover it. Covering it never works. It always makes it worse. And as Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 13, which is very applicable still here, remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 13, we are fully known by God. If you're his child, you are fully known. So Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, you know, he accuses us, the brothers and sisters, the children of God, and Jesus, our advocate, says, you know what? Yeah, I know they did that. I fully know them. There's nothing you can tell me about your, you know, there's nothing that, that anyone can say to God about your life that he doesn't already know. You're fully known. So what confidence and assurance do you have? No one can accuse you of anything if they already know everything about you. Jesus shed his blood for your sin. So there's no hoping they don't find out I'm a phony. There's no, like, I blew this and I'm never going to get past this. We know we didn't save ourselves. Jesus shed his blood. And God looks at me, and now he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I want you to look at it again. I know it was a few weeks ago when we were there, but this is one of those verses that you probably need to look back to every single day. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He looks at us who are his children. He doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So stop dealing in worldly grief and just dealing with the symptoms and instead get to the heart, the root of the disease. Worldly grief produces despair and depression because it's focused on regret from the past, which can't be changed. You can't change the past. Godly grief repents of it, puts it in the hands of Jesus at the foot of the cross, and you move forward because you're not looking, at, looking behind, you're looking ahead, and you're looking up to God. What a great promise. No regret. One last piece on this is fear of losing what the world offers makes us conceal or deny or blame our sin on someone else. That is worldly grief. Fear of losing out on what God offers you is what causes you to get things right, to repent, and actually put things in the past. Now, as I said, there's one more element to finding this, this comfort and joy in the midst of affliction. I already touched on it back at the end of the, of the first point, but as I promised, Paul is going to come back to this and elaborates even more on this human element with Titus. So read with me. Second half of verse 13 down to the end of the chapter. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. The last point here, number three, is tether yourself to others who are walking with Christ. 
You can't miss this piece of it. God has created you as a relational being because he is a relational being, and we're made in his image. So it all goes back to we need these relationships with one another. Paul was tethered to the Corinthians. Paul's joy exploded when he told Titus, you know what? I love these people, and there's some bad apples in the tree right now, but, but I know these people. God knows these people. God loves these people. These people are saints. Remember what he called the Corinthians? Is, is all, they had all these problems. It's as bad as it got. God, Paul knew these people love God. He had confidence. They're going to respond. Now, he doubted it. He sent Titus there with a the letter. And after the fact, you kind of had like that, that seller's remorse. Like, oh, man, what did I just, what, am I, what are we doing here? But, but Paul told Titus, these people are awesome. You can trust these people. God's going to do a work here. They're going to get through this. There's some counterfeits in their midst, for sure, that's been addressed. And those, those bad apples, those, those people who did not have the purity of the gospel in mind, um, you know, I'm sure they left in a huff. But the ones who were adopted by God, just wait, they're going to snap out of it. And that's exactly what happened. Titus comes back and he's like, wow, those are good people. I can't believe how, fun, how much fun I had. They comforted me. I didn't even want to leave. This wasn't a great experience. I was a little worried. I, I was like going into the den of all these like nasty, these nasty problems. But Titus went in there, and the Holy Spirit changed the environment. And he brought peace, which provided more comfort, and it created more joy in everyone's life because relationships were restored. Notice that Paul didn't force it, right? He wrote the letter. He backed off. He gave room for the Holy Spirit to fix those broken human relationships. He still said the truth. He didn't backtrack off of that. He, he used Titus, and Titus comes in, and everybody's one big happy family again. This is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit bringing unity and peace and comfort. Yeah, there were unequally yoked unbelievers in their midst, and they were dealt with, and they were gone. Praise God for that. So, as we've been seeing throughout this series, this, this whole book, you need solid relationships in the church, in the body of Christ. You need to tether yourself to people who love Jesus. And as messy and as scary as that sounds, you're never going to experience the fullness of joy and comfort that God has for you until you do that. Again, because there's something about being human that we get more joy and in, in experience in life when we have tethered ourselves to other people and we, and we give that love and we receive that love. God wants a relationship with you, but he has designed his relationship with you to also feed off and permeate other relationships with other human beings. You were never going to experience the fullness of joy that God has for you until you invest in people and experience that love in return. Worship team, you can come back up right here. This, this portion of 2 Corinthians has come to a close. He's going to start talking about giving in 8 and 9, and, and we're going to take a short break from 2 Corinthians. We'll come back to it in the summer. 
But I hope you all realize what Paul has been teaching here is life is filled with affliction. Don't ever listen to that cell, that, 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 that line that the church, oh, come to Jesus and all your problems are going to go away. No, they're not. Until you are with Christ face to face in eternity, we are going to be dealing with issues. We will be afflicted. So expect that. I know it's not happy, happy, happy news, but you can actually get comfort that goes way beyond just pampering someone and soothing someone. You can get confidence and boldness in your relationship with God. Remember, we are living for something so much bigger than just being happy and being well-fed and comforted right now. We are the aroma of Christ. You're living for Jesus. You are living for the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. Live for eternity. So you have to ask yourself as we close this out, what is it in life that gives you joy? Are you, is part of the whole problem for you the fact that you're dealing with and living for things that are circumstantial? Okay, great. My, my job is going well right now. And, you know, I have this amazing relationship with a special someone. So circumstances right now are good. So I'm good. Praise God. God is amazing. But what happens when those circumstances flip? As they always do go up and down, right? Your joy has to be rooted on something deeper than simply circumstances. It has to go back to God who comforts the downcast. It has to go into the fact that you can find actual forgiveness through repentance, and you can find salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never confessed your sin and turned away from thinking, my life is what this is all about. I'm going to pursue my pleasure, my passions. I'm going to find this success. I'm going to do this. That's the world. That's where they're at. And they, they have this horizontal life. Everything is what they can see and feel in front of them. You know what that, what that brings and what that's full of? It's full of worldly grief. It's full of worldly sorrow. Even though there's good times mixed in, it doesn't have what Paul is talking about here. Godly grief that brings about repentance, and that repentance leads to salvation. You have actually an anchor. You have a good father who loves you. Earthly troubles can never hinder your eternal hope that you have in God. Joy doesn't come from circumstances. Joy comes from God. And it comes from the people that God puts in your life. And when you open yourself up and you put yourself out there, you realize just how great God is and how undeserving you are of all the good gifts he's given you. If you have salvation, you have everything. You don't need anything more. You didn't deserve it. And you can look at the issues going on that are temporary, that you don't know, don't fully understand. And you can say, you know what? God saved me. He, he sent Jesus to die for me. Jesus took my punishment. It's going to work out. It's going to work out. Stand up with me. God has to be your true north, okay? 
And just, just to think about this, when I, there's a lot of times we get lost in the mix of things. You know, when I, when I lived out in Colorado, when we were first married, we lived in Colorado. And I was, so the, some of you know me, I'm really bad with directions. Like I get lost all the time. Julie does not enjoy that aspect of my personality. But in Colorado, it was for a person who is directionally challenged, it was a dream come true. Because we lived in the front range, okay? So like, if you wanted to know where north, east, west, or south was, you just looked, looked to the mountains, and that was west, okay? And then, if, so if, if, I, if I'm looking at the mountains, all right, I know exactly where north is. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I can, I can find my way back. That's how you got your bearings, by the mountains, okay? When you're in these afflictions and you're in these times of fierce, unknown, and just attacking, fighting with that on the outside, fear within, go to God who comforts the downcast. He is your true north. He's the one who gives you your bearings. One day, the curse of sin will be removed. And when that happens, the thorns will go away and they will not be a part of the rose anymore. Right now, yeah, every rose has its thorn. One day for eternity, the rose will not have any thorns. Let's sing this. Let's praise God. Let's worship him. And talk to God about what you need to deal with right now.